So this morning, in uh, Pastor Jim's absence, we're honored to uh, have Pastor Shane Rosenthal preach the word to us today. Uh, Shane hails from Hillsboro, Missouri, about an hour south of St. Louis. He had a bit of a hike to get here this afternoon. Uh, he's a ruling elder at Christ Presbyterian Church, uh, which is an OPC congregation in St. Charles, uh, where he also served as uh, an, an assistant pastor for five years. Uh, he graduated from Westminster Seminary in California and is currently executive producer of the uh, popular Re Reformation-based White Horse Inn radio show and podcast. So, welcome, brother. Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. I bring you greetings from Christ Presbyterian Church in St. Charles, and uh, I am thankful that uh, we have the opportunity this morning to dive into 1 Corinthians 15. So let me ask this morning as we begin uh, our dive, if I was to ask you what is the most important thing taught in Scripture, what do you think you might answer? What, what would your list include? You might add, uh, you know, to your list, worship, prayer, missions, evangelism, faith, eternal life, sanctification, grace, the holiness of God, or perhaps even his triune nature. What biblical topics would you add to the list of the most important things in all of the Bible? And more importantly, what would you put at the top of the list? In other words, what in your view is the most important thing in all of Scripture? Would you be able to come up with just a single answer? Or do you think it's perhaps too difficult to sort of rank the biblical topics in that way? In case you're tempted by the idea that it's uh, that because the Bible is God's inspired word, that all of its precepts are of equal weight and value, I will remind you of Jesus' words to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, in which he says to the Pharisees, you mint tithe and dill, sorry, you, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now, of course, it's not that tithing mint and dill and cumin were unimportant, but in Jesus' view, they carried less significance, less weight, than when compared with the more important themes of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And on, on another occasion, recorded in Matthew 22, uh, a lawyer came up to Jesus uh, and asked him which of all the commandments recorded in the law of Moses was the greatest. And as you'll recall from that scene, Jesus didn't end up saving, saying that all the commandments were equally important. But instead, he cited Deuteronomy 6, which is the, the text we chose for the Old Testament lesson this morning, which says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. This, he said, was the great and first commandment. And the second, he said, is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, some of you, perhaps, at this point, may be beginning to think that Jesus has possibly answered our question for us. Perhaps loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength is the most important thing in all the Bible. 
It's certainly an idea that has some merit, given that Jesus himself placed so much weight on this statement in the passage we just looked at from Matthew 22. However, if we consider the lawyer's original question carefully, Jesus wasn't actually asked, what's the most important thing in all the Bible? Rather, he was asked, what's the most important commandment recorded in God's law? See the difference there? The thing to notice at this point is that Jesus doesn't seem to have a problem, though, with the idea of ranking various biblical topics in order of their importance. And so in light of that, I'll ask you again, what theme or teaching in all of the Bible do you think we should place at the very top? What is the thing of first importance? Well, before we begin the difficult process of weighing and comparing all the doctrines of the Bible this morning uh, and attempt to answer this challenging question, uh, I, let me just quickly point out that the Apostle Paul has done the heavy lifting for us. In particular, he does it in our New Testament lesson this morning from 1 Corinthians 15, which I will uh, invite you to turn to now as we read and reflect on this important chapter in some detail. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 1, Paul says that he would like to remind the brothers there in Corinth of the gospel that I preached and which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. I will stop there, just in the middle of verse 3, as... Uh, as we interact with this passage. By the way, I'm reading from the ESV. Um, and uh, so as we think about what he is saying here at the very opening, you know, verse 1 makes clear that Paul's goal is to remind the Corinthians of the gospel. In too many churches in our day, including Reformed and Presbyterian churches, the gospel is assumed and taken for granted. And because it's just assumed, over time, the focus begins to shift to other things, to other more practical and relevant things, like what I'm supposed to do, like uh, the, the relevant things for me in my life. In a sense, it, you could say that it, it causes a kind of mission creep where we drift away from the central things. But Paul never did take the gospel for granted, as he says here in 1 Corinthians 15, the good news about Jesus was the focus of his preaching while he was with the saints in Corinth, and it was the message upon which they stood, and it is the message by which they were being saved, and it is the message that he writes to remind them about, as he is now, some three years later, addressing the saints in this letter, which is now our epistle, the first epistle to the Corinthians. Now let's go back now to the beginning of verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What is the thing of first importance? Well, it's the very thing he's just mentioned. As we've pointed out, he's, already he's here reminding them of the gospel that he'd proclaimed while he'd been among them. And so, in other words, Paul is telling us here in this passage that of all the things he taught the Corinthians... While he lived among them, the most important thing was the gospel of Jesus Christ, the euangelion, 
That's the Greek word for good news. The good news about Jesus. Now, unfortunately, in our day, there's a lot of confusion about what the gospel is. Some say the good news is that Jesus delivers us from things like depression and poverty, and that if we apply the principles of Jesus to our lives, he can help us to achieve our best life now. Others say that the good news is that Jesus inspires us to renovate all of our social institutions and helps us to create our best world now. You know, one without hate and greed or carbon emissions. The wonderful thing about 1 Corinthians 15 is that Paul not only tells us that the gospel is the thing of first importance, but he also is very clear about what the gospel is. So picking up again at verse 3, he says, For I did deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Whether you are a new believer, or you have uh, been a Christian for decades, let this short summary of the gospel be an anchor for your faith. Notice that there's nothing in this short summary about what you and I need to do either to appease God or to improve things here on, uh, on earth, either in our own households or in our society at large. According to the Apostle Paul, the gospel has nothing to do with the fact, uh, you know, nothing to do with this, these kinds of renovation projects, but everything to do with what Christ has done for us, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and raised on the third day, and this was testified in advance throughout the scriptures in time by living eyewitnesses. This is the very heart of the good news that we profess. Some theologians end up putting it like this. They say things like, if you're talking about anything going on inside you, you're not talking about the gospel. It may be a good thing this renovation project that you are experiencing, this sanctification, but that's an effect of the gospel, and it's not the gospel. The gospel has to do with what Jesus accomplished. It's news that we're going to report, and it's news that's already been accomplished. The gospel is good news about what Jesus did. The very word gospel, you see, is this reporting of news like you would have a town crier in the ancient world who would report the good news of a free wedding banquet that all were invited to. It's not something that they need to do, it's just something you need to come in and receive, this gift that is being given. And the particular gift that is being given that is outlined here has to do with what Jesus accomplished for us on a hill far away some 2,000 years ago just outside the center of the city of Jerusalem. It's a proclamation of an event that has transpired in real space and time history. And the result of which brings good news and cheer and joy and happiness. Like the reporting of a peace treaty or the end of war. I don't know if some of you may be familiar with that uh, famous Life magazine picture where this uh, sailor is kissing a complete stranger in Times Square. 
You know, if you think about what happens there, at the end of World War II, this image is, pick, is, this is captured and it becomes this sort of icon of Americana. But what is it, if you think about it, what was it that caused a stranger, this sailor, to, to kiss this complete strange woman he'd never met before? If you think about it, it was just a natural reaction to the reception of good news. He responded with enthusiastic joy in a way that would be awkward in any other kind of time and moment. It was the announcement of US victory at war, the end of World War II. So now think about this. If you were to go back in time and give that man a list of instructions, a to-do list of how to improve his life or how to end the war, do you think he would respond so enthusiastically? Do you think he would receive that proclamation or rather that set of instructions with such good news? Of course not. Because you haven't given any, him anything to celebrate, just instructions and imperatives that he needs to put into practice. Brothers and sisters, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not an imperative. It is a triumphant indicative. It's an announcement of something that's been done for us already. It's the announcement of Christ's victory for you and for the world. Because of our sins, Paul says in Romans 5, we were God's enemies, but in our place condemned he stood. Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day. Let's take another look at verses 3 through 5 now of 1 Corinthians 15. Starting at verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he, was, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. If you spend some time studying the book of Deuteronomy, there are basically two criteria for distinguishing true and false prophets. The first criteria is from chapter 13, and it says basically that a prophet who comes along, even if he performs amazing miracles, must not lead the people astray to worship other gods, but rather he must continue to proclaim the God of Israel and what he teaches must be consistent with all that God had already revealed through his prophet, through the prophet Moses, through God's servant Moses. The second criteria recorded in Deuteronomy 18 says that those who claim to speak for God should be rejected if they also claim things that are going to happen that don't actually end up coming to pass. They must declare the thing in advance correctly. <laughs> and if they don't actually declare correctly the future, they are to be rejected. In other words, if you think about that, they are not necessarily to be believed instantaneously. No leap of faith is, is required. You don't just say, the prophet said it, I believe it, that settles it. Rather, you evaluate the prophet's words and you compare what he said with its actual fulfillment in history. And when it's confirmed, that's when you know this was a prophet sent by God. I'd like you to think about those two criteria as we consider the words here from 1 Corinthians 15. As we're told in verse 3, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. 
You see, the New Testament proclamation is not something new. This is not a new religion that is being invented, but is the fulfillment of the old Hebrew scriptures. It's not a departure from the Jewish faith. It's the fulfillment of all that the Hebrew scriptures proclaimed. All that Christ accomplished was consistent with the promises recorded throughout the law and the prophets, just as Jesus himself taught in Luke 24. At the end of... Uh, that, that chapter, when he appears to the disciples and his, during his resurrection appearances, he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul not only says that Christ died, but also that he rose again from the dead. And that was recorded well that all this was recorded well beforehand throughout the scriptures and seen by living eyewitnesses such as Peter and the Twelve. Now, this part here is also very important because it fulfills another requirement from the book of Deuteronomy regarding the value of eyewitness testimony. In Deuteronomy 19.15, we're told that a single witness shall not suffice. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a matter be established. Now, what's recorded here for us succinctly in 1 Corinthians 15 regarding the appearance of Jesus to Peter and the Twelve is unpacked a little further in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, Paul has the ability to preach a sermon to a centurion, a Gentile centurion, in the city of Caesarea. And during that sermon, Peter says this, Acts 10, We are witnesses of all that Jesus did both in Judea and Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day, and made him to appear, not only to, the, to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. Notice the emphasis there on witness. He is corroborating the story. He was an eyewitness. And also, this is something that had been uh, promised beforehand. We had been chosen as God's witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. There's the gospel. But that gospel is established. It's confirmed by witnesses. Two different kinds. Did you notice? Just like what Paul says. Peter is an eyewitness, but also there was the scripture witness beforehand. Paul says the same thing in this 1 Corinthians passage, that this was seen by eyewitnesses, and it's according to the scriptures. Notice in Peter's sermon in Acts 10, we find that same emphasis too on the death and the resurrection. This is the heart of the gospel presentation. This death and resurrection testified in advance by the prophets as well as those living eyewitnesses in that generation that the thing is properly established. It's properly established and it's official according to the things outlined in God's law there in Deuteronomy. This, Peter says, is the reason we can have confidence that Jesus is the one appointed to be the judge of the living and the dead. Now let's take... Another look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Starting at verse 3, let's read again. I delivered to you, Paul says, as of first importance what I also received. Stop there. Now, just think about that. I delivered to you as of first importance. This, there, there is very strong evidence that this epistle was written by the spring of 54 AD. 
okay? 54 AD. And that Paul had spent about 18 months ministering to the church in Corinth around three years earlier, which ends up only being about two, year, two decades removed from Christ's crucifixion. But notice the words that Paul uses when he talks about delivering to them what he had already received. One thing that scholars from a very wide variety of backgrounds have pointed out is the fact that the information Paul delivers in this passage is presented in a very unique and stylized way. For example, in his summary of the gospel, we find parallelisms and other aids to memorization. Particularly when we read that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. Do you see that sort of the rhythm and the cadence and the, easy the easily memorizable uh, construction there? For this and numerous other reasons, the vast consensus of New Testament scholars, the vast consensus, whether these New Testament scholars are really conservative or radically liberal, okay? vast consensus, is that Paul is actually citing the words of a very early Christian creed. This is why he says, that which I received, I delivered to you, which is the kind of language that one uses when discussing the transmission of sacred tradition. In our service already, we've cited a creed, the Apostles' Creed, that had certain kind of rhythm and cadence, and it's something that the church has been doing for thousands of years. But we should ask ourselves, when did Paul receive this tradition? Is something he's reminding them of. He's not introducing it to them for the first time. He's reminding them of this. He had already delivered this tradition to them in the 50s. Here he's writing to them in, the, in 54. Early 50s, 51 maybe. According to a very liberal scholar by the name of John Dominic Crossan, just to show you how liberal he is, some of you may be familiar with the Jesus Seminar. John Dominic Crossan was one of the, those kind of New Testament scholars. Very, very liberal. Crossan says, the most likely source and time for Paul's reception of that tradition would have been Jerusalem in the early 30s. Jerusalem in the early 30s. When according to Galatians 1, he went up to Jerusalem to visit Peter. N.T. Wright says of this early creed, we are here in touch with the earliest Christian tradition with something that was being said two decades or more before Paul wrote this letter. Two decades before he wrote the letter. He wrote the letter in 54. This would put this in around 34. As I've indicated, these kinds of quotes are not outliers, but this is the dominant view, even among non-Christian New Testament scholars. Yeah, that sounds weird, but there are many non-Christian New Testament scholars. Why? Because the New Testament is a historical collection of documents that are studied in universities around the world, not just in seminaries. They have to be explained, and many non-Christian scholars study them for, their, for a living. So, for example, you have a writer, an atheist New Testament scholar by the name of Gerd Ludemann, who does not believe that, that Jesus is the Messiah, and yet he does agree with this idea that this is a very early Christian creed that Paul is citing. So think about the implications of this for a moment. If Paul received this tradition in the mid-30s, when he visited Jerusalem, this would indicate that the creed we find here in 1 Corinthians was formulated sometime within a few years of the crucifixion itself. 
Most people, most New Testament scholars, place the, the death and resurrection of Jesus at about 30 AD, though some put it at 33. So we're talking about either within a year or a few years of the death and resurrection of Jesus. The reason is this, is this is important is that it undercuts one of the primary arguments that many critics have used to reject the claims of Christianity. For example, many people over the last two centuries have argued that you know, Jesus was just a nice teacher who said some things that you know, got the powers upset with him and you know, eventually got him crucified. He, after all, was just, he was just a nice guy who wanted to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. And unfortunately, um, it wasn't received, and so he got, you know, accidentally crucified. But as the years went on, people began to revere their teacher, and that reverence turned into worship. And that's a sort of a long, sort of evolutionary view that it takes a while for that to happen. In the beginning, people sort of knew he was just a nice teacher, and, but within a century, he'd been kind of turned into a God-man. That's the typical liberal story that you've seen uh, in, for example, uh, many, many uh, German uh, theologians over the last 150 years, and it kind of trickled into American Academy for the last 100 years. So this, is, uh, this has been the, the general way that the story's been told. How the inspiring teacher from Galilee was eventually, eventually turned into the Christ of faith. And as such, Stories were later crafted to make it look as if Jesus was a kind of a God-man who had risen from the dead and fulfilled various prophecies. Those stories would then be called the Gospels, but they're much, much later. So, uh, for example, in the time, uh, if you go back more than 100 years, there were many scholars who were arguing that the Gospel of John was written in, say, late 2nd century, 170 AD. One major thing that sort of shook the world and readjusted things was finding a copy of the Gospel of John that dated to somewhere between 100 and 125 AD. You can't have a copy of a text that was written in 100 or 125 if it was written actually in 170. So even a radically liberal scholar by the name of Rudolf Bultmann argued he had to adjust his thing. He said, well, there's no way it could have been written later than 82, which is still within that eyewitness period. I actually argue that it was written sometime well before the Jewish war in the 60s, but that's a, to a topic for another discussion. In this early Christian uh, creed, scholars say that uh, originated within just a few short years of the death of Jesus. We find this statement by the earliest Christians affirming the central beliefs that the old liberal scholars used to say took hundreds of years to evolve. We find it here right in the very beginning. From the very beginning, we find the earliest Christians affirming that Jesus was Israel's divine Messiah. He wasn't a nice teacher who was revered. He is Israel's divine Messiah. That, by the way, is what the word Christ means. It's not his last name. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Mashiach, the divine Messiah. Most of us are just so familiar with this word Christ that we simply gloss over it without actually thinking about what it means, but what did the Jews believe about their Messiah? According to Isaiah 9-6, he was to be born as a child, he's human, and yet he's also going to have the government resting upon his shoulders, he will be the wonderful counselor, mighty God. 
and he was to sit on David's throne and establish it forever. This is what's being affirmed in this creed from the mid to early 30s. Jesus is that man. He is the God-man who had just recently been crucified. What's more, the, the one uh, who was put to death in such a public manner at a time when Jerusalem was packed with visitors celebrating Passover, according to this creed, was later seen alive after the fact by a host of witnesses. Furthermore, all of these early witnesses testified about Jesus concerning his death for sin, his burial, and resurrection. This creed states that it had actually been recorded in advance by the Hebrew prophets. In other words, the old liberal hypothesis that the Christian story evolved over time, over the better part of a century, from the groovy teacher from Galilee uh, to Jesus' legendary status as uh, the God-man who triumphed over the grave, this just isn't supported by the facts at all. From the very beginning, Jesus was worshipped as the divine Messiah who died for sin and who conquered the grave. Now when the framers of this early creed affirmed that Christ died and rose again in accordance with the scriptures, we should stop to ask what biblical texts they would have likely had in mind. Notice, they, it doesn't cite the scriptures, but it mentions this according to the scriptures language twice. It's assuming the person who's reciting the creed knows the scriptures. That it's, a, it's sort of just this handle that's assuming a lot. So what scriptures would they likely have had in mind if you were to visit a church there in Jerusalem or in Corinth in the 30 or 50 AD? What scriptures would they, would they, would they likely talk about if you were, to talk, you were to cite the creed and say, what scriptures here uh, would you think about for Christ dying for the, the Messiah, dying for sin, and then being buried and then being risen on the third day? The scholars who have thought about that question and looked at it closely have tended to focus on one passage in particular, and that's namely Isaiah 53. According to one scholar by the name of Daniel Boyarin, who teaches uh, Talmud at University of Berkeley, fascinating, uh, fascinating scholar, he, he actually says that there's strong evidence that many Jews, both before and after the time of Jesus, so from the first century to the fourth century, or from the first century BC to the second or third century BC. There, whether, whatever time period you're talking about in ancient Judaism, there's evidence that these Jews believed that Isaiah 53 was actually about the suffering servant who is the divine Messiah, who would suffer for the sins of Israel and would redeem her. As just one example of this, I will read to you a slight, uh, a, few, a short quote from the Dead Sea Scrolls referring to this very passage. This is a hymn from the Dead Sea Scrolls in which Isaiah's prophecy is alluded to. This famous suffering servant passage from Isaiah 53 is alluded to here, and I will point out those allusions. It says this, There are none comparable to me in my glory. No one besides me shall be exalted. That sort of glory language is common throughout the book of Isaiah in particular, and no one has it except for God alone, Yahweh. For I have dwelt on high in the heavens. Who is considered as contemptible as I am, and who has been despised like me? 
Who, is, who like me is rejected by men? A clear reference to Isaiah 53, 3. He is despised and rejected. Who has borne troubles like me? Isaiah 53, 4. Who is like me among the divine beings? This is a divine person who is speaking, who is also being rejected and so, who suffers. Who like me is among the divine? Sing praise, O beloved ones. Sing praise to the king of glory. That king of glory language is unmistakable. Light shines out and joy pours forth. Fear ceases. A fountain for eternal blessing opens. Iniquity is ended and guilt shall be no more. This is a hymn that was sung in Israel before the time of Jesus. And it refers to God appearing in some kind of humiliated state who is despised and rejected and who suffers and yet atones for sin, ends iniquity and guilt. This is the kind of Messiah that many Jews before the time of Jesus were expecting. He was to be both divine and human, but also be despised and rejected. And somehow he would also solve this problem of guilt once for all. For example, in Isaiah 53 verse 5, we're told that the suffering servant was to be pierced for our transgressions. Verses 8 through 9, that he would be cut off from the land of the living, laid in the grave. That doesn't sound like good news. He's cut off from the land of the living. He's laid in the grave. This is clearly death language. A rich man was involved in his burial. Could it be any clearer? This is a death. A death is involved here. In verse 11, though, we're told that he would bear the iniquities of many and that he would see light and that he would then divide spoils in a victory celebration. Typically, I, I don't know about you, but if, if you go to a grave, you don't see someone buried and then celebrating. In this case, the one celebrates because he makes, he bears the iniquity of many and makes them to be accounted as righteous. Accounted righteous. This is justification language. 700 years before Jesus arrives on the scene. This is the gospel in the Old Testament. He is bearing our iniquity and he is making us to be accounted righteous. And then he sees light and divides spoils divides his spoils in celebration. Now think about this for a moment. We've seen evidence from 1 Corinthians 15 of an early Christian creed that reveals the convictions of the earliest Christian community. The creed reveals that the story of Jesus didn't evolve over time, but that from the very beginning he was believed to be the Messiah that was promised from the Old Testament prophets. This is the Messiah who was you know, to die and to be buried and to rise again in a victory celebration. But what's even more amazing is that the, the fact that the, all the essential elements of the creed that Paul cites are also there in Isaiah and in many other prophets. In other words, the substance of this creed does not merely go back to the time just after Christ's crucifixion. It's as amazing as it is that this isn't, in, you know, written in 54 by Paul. As amazing as it is that it goes back maybe a couple decades earlier to just around the time of Jesus, what's really amazing is that it actually goes back 700 years before that. Because it's all there in substance in Isaiah. This is the real significance of the 
according to the scriptures language that repeats in this creed that the earliest Christians recited. Now, of course, many people in our day suggest that perhaps the entire story of Jesus is embellished to make it look as if Jesus had fulfilled all these old prophecies. Yeah, perhaps uh, Isaiah wrote this stuff in 700, but maybe it's all fiction. Maybe there never even was a Jesus. It's all fiction, and they're just writing that Jesus fulfilled all this stuff. The problem with this view is that, as we've seen, the deception must have taken place from the very beginning at a time in which potential converts who would have had the opportunity to verify the claims being made by the earliest Christians just ignored their responsibility to confirm and verify these things. That responsibility that's given to the Jewish people in Deuteronomy. These things need to be properly established. These things should not be believed if it's not, if you predict something that doesn't actually come to pass. Think about that too. The person, to be a real prophet, has to predict something that comes to pass. Just think about Isaiah for a second. Isaiah. Why did Isaiah's work get added to the canon? Why was he, why was his writing stapled to, to the writings of Moses as if it's on the same par? Well, think about from the sort of vantage point of his experience. He's prophesying a lot of short-term things that that maybe weren't even recorded in the scriptures. But just think about the, some of the things he did write about. He wrote and lived during the time of the Assyrian crisis. He talked about Sennacherib coming and invading Jerusalem. It's going to surround Jerusalem. And yet the Assyrian army will head back home without destroying, without even shooting a single arrow into Jerusalem. It happened just like he said. In fact, Herodotus mentions the same record. The Hezek, the... Uh, Sennacherib Prism, which you can go up into the University of Chicago's Oriental Museum. You can see it with your, in the cuneiform. First you'd have to study cuneiform, and then you read it. But it says that Jerusalem was surrounded by Sennacherib like a caged bird. It's right there in history, but it doesn't talk about it being decimated like other towns that he decimated. You, so this is history we're talking about. He described it in advance, and then he went on, Isaiah went on to describe the sack of Jerusalem by Babylon, by Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't mention Nebuchadnezzar by name, but he does say that is Jerusalem will fall, and the people will be shipped off, and they will live life in exile. He also mentions that some years after that, the people will be, will be relieved from their exile and will be liberated by a man named Cyrus, whom he mentions by name. This is some 200 or so years after his time. It's so clear, in fact, that many liberal scholars who don't believe in the supernatural authority of the scripture argue that it must have been written later by a different Isaiah. Which makes sense if you think about it from their perspective. There are no miracles, therefore when you see one, you have to explain it some other way. But what they don't think about is Isaiah 53. In Sennacherib, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Jesus. Look at Isaiah 52 and 53. And is there any other way to, to read those chapters without saying this is God's clear prediction? It's a chapter from Luke's gospel. 
or Matthew's gospel written 700 years in advance. It can't be explained in any other way than to say this is supernatural. So he establishes that he is a prophet in the short term, but also to us more convincingly than any in the long term. That is, we don't just have to trust that it's divine. There's evidence, there's confirmation that this is God's divine speech. Just like with Moses, too. Moses, at the very beginning, the burning bush. You know, God, if I go to the people of Israel and I tell, tell them, you know, I had this conversation with a bush, they're probably not going to believe me. So what do I tell them? How are they going to trust that I'm really... Well, if they, if they, if they wonder uh, that you're really a prophet, then I will give you this sign, and then I'll give you this sign, and then I'll give you this sign. If they don't believe the first sign, they'll believe the second sign. In other words, he was giving him signs, external signs, to the word that confirmed the word. What does Jesus do during the, uh, the scene where the paralytic is lowered from the roof? So that you may believe that I have the power to forgive sin, I tell you, get up and walk. Something to confirm the word. So now, this early Christian creed says that Peter and the other disciples were all witnesses of Christ's resurrection. And Paul adds that at one point, Jesus was seen alive after his crucifixion by over 500 brothers at one time, which actually fits nicely with the evidence we find in Matthew 28. You know, in Matthew 28, we actually find a passage that says, where, uh, where it says, Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So Jesus, after his resurrection tells people to go to Galilee. And it's, he's telling the 12 this, so go to tell the extended, you know, the, all the extended disciples. So it's, it's a large gathering of some kind. In Matthew 14, we're actually told that during the miracle of the loaves and fishes, the number who ate was about 5,000 men, quote, not including women and children. Why do you think that is? Over and over again, when you find people in first century Judea counting, they were counting heads of households. In this kind of case, you, what you want to think of is groups of 50 or 100 coming to receive food, and then the, all those heads of households would be counted, and then they would go off and away feed. Another group would come in. That's how they're counting, heads of households. So the feeding of the 5,000 is actually a lot more than 5,000. That's what this says. It was a very common way to count. So according to Matthew, the feeding of the 5,000 is really much more significant. And similarly here, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Now, were only male disciples visible or, or present at this point? Well, no, because he was telling all the disciples to meet him in Galilee. And it wasn't going to be limited only to the male disciples. So surely women and children will be present with him there as well, which means it's actually a much larger audience than we typically think. So more than likely, this number reflects just the adult male disciples. And if we were there, we would say 500, okay, that's, that's the way that we typically count, probably closer to 1,000 or something to that effect. Now, assume for a minute that Jesus never really did rise again from the dead. And that most of what we read here in 1 Corinthians 15 and in the Gospels was a complete fabrication. 
When the early Christians claimed that hundreds upon hundreds of individuals had witnessed Jesus' resurrection at one time, did nobody check to see that this really happened? Did no one check to see whether the tomb was still empty? That, that could have been an easy thing to do. Did, uh, did anybody check to see if Jesus had really fulfilled the, the Old Testament prophecies? Like the fact that he was to be born in Bethlehem? The public records are there. If it's a fiction, so again, this, if it's a fiction, it has to be a very early fiction. Because all these early Christians, and there are a lot of them, are reciting this creed in the first two decades. So if it's an early fiction, are none of these converts checking the public records to see, is, was there ever a Jesus? Was he born in Bethlehem? Did anyone ever check to see if he really had uh, soldiers cast lots for his clothing from a prophecy from the psalm, Psalm 22. Uh, did anyone investigate whether Jesus really gave sight to the blind, opened the ears of the deaf, and made the lame to walk, Isaiah 35? Or that he went around forgiving people their sins, Jeremiah 31, 34? Given that the followers of Jesus, even in those early days, were often cast out of the synagogues and disowned by their parents, did no one attempt to verify any of these important details? As we pointed out from the book of Deuteronomy, the people of Israel were specifically instructed not to believe a person who claims a thing, but to confirm that these things were so. In other words, it's not the act of faith that's important, but the object of faith. There's even a line from the Proverbs, the simple person believes anything. The wise man gives thought to his steps. This is what Israel was always encouraged to do, to think it through, to, to make sure this is confirmed, to trust in the fulfillment of things. The fulfillment means it's going to happen in history. We must believe in that which is objectively true, and which has been historically confirmed. And yet in the case of the early Jesus movement, which was overwhelmingly Jewish from its inception, we are asked to believe that no one sought confirmation that Jesus had really fulfilled any of these Old Testament prophecies, even in the face of persecution? As implausible as that seems, the most difficult aspect of the story that Jesus, you know, that the Jesus story has been embellished in order to make it look as if he fulfilled all these prophecies, ends up being related to something that happens much later. For example, in chapter 49 of his prophecy, Isaiah says of the Messiah, quote, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That's us. But we didn't, but, but nobody here in North America believed in the gospel when they wrote this story. But it came true. It's at least something to ponder. If it was a fiction, and this was sort of something that they were writing, man, they got lucky. Of course, this part of Jesus' story is something we know very well today, since over time Christianity did, in fact, become the world's largest religion. And he does have followers in every part of the globe. I mean, if Jesus had a Facebook page, he'd probably have the most followers in the world. 
so if Jesus' story was embellished to make it look as if he had fulfilled all these messianic prophecies, it appears that the hucksters who crafted the stories just happened to get incredibly lucky on this particular front. His message of salvation really did up, end up reaching the ends of the earth. And when you begin to tug on that thread, you'll soon discover that various universal promises of this type actually go all the way back to the very beginning of the story. This isn't just Isaiah and Jeremiah and various small one line or two here or there. It's the fabric that goes throughout the whole thing, the whole tapestry of scripture. I mean, in Genesis 22, Abraham was told, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Not just Israel. Later in Psalm 22, a thousand years later, David writes that all the families of the nations shall worship before you. And this after he spent most of his time in that Psalm talking about the suffering servant who would be pierced, whose hands and feet would be pierced. In Micah 5, two, Micah 5, we're told that uh, one who would be born in Bethlehem will be great to the ends of the earth. Again, there's that ends of the earth language. This, this one whose origins are from of old, from of ancient times, who will be born in Bethlehem. In time, all these promises ended up being fulfilled by Jesus. And yet, according to the conspiracy theorists, the, the fulfillment of all these universal promises just happens to be a strange accident of history. Now take a look at verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 15. After mentioning the event in which Jesus was seen by over 500 brothers at one time, Paul then says, quote, he appeared to James. It's very easy just to read that and pass over, but this is really significant. The interesting thing about James is that he was depicted in the Gospels as one who stubbornly refused to believe that his brother was, in fact, Israel's Messiah. If you have a brother, it might be, a, would it be a, a challenge for you to breathe, believe in your brother's uh, messianic divine nature? Yeah, there's, might be a little bit of a challenge. This is what we actually find if you look at John 7. Uh, we've, John 7 verse 5 says explicitly, For not even his brothers believed in him. Mark 3.21 puts it even more bluntly. In that passage, it, we're told that, quote, When his family heard what Jesus was doing, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. <laughs> That's what it says. If it's fiction, I mean, would you put that in there? Would you make up a story about a divine Messiah? Who? The family thought it was crazy, but... But things have radically changed when we get to the book of Acts, which says that Jesus' disciples gathered in the upper room and devoted themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. The very beginning of the story, just uh, within 30 days or so, uh, they're worshiping with the early Christians. What changed James' mind? In the Gospels, he and his, and his brothers think that Jesus has flipped his lid, but at the opening of Acts, he's worshiping and praying with the disciples. And furthermore, even outside the Gospels and Acts, James is mentioned by a first century Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. He says that, quote, Annas the high priest assembled the Sanhedrin and brought before them James, the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, along with the, some of his companions. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them over to be stoned to death. There's another reference in Josephus' writings that a lot of scholars say is not necessarily 100% reliable because it has signs of being somewhat interpolated over the years. 
But nobody disputes this particular quote from Josephus, which clearly mentions Jesus as a historical person, and it mentions that he had a brother named James. So as it turns out, James is regarded as one of the pillars, the leaders of the Jerusalem church, in both Christian and non-Christian sources. And this should cause everyone to ask, what was it that made James such a firm believer in his brother's messianic identity? Those of you who've, you know, thought about, you know, your own brothers, this is a hard thing to get, to get us to do. But James did it. He believed his brother, his sibling, was the Messiah. And the best explanation for that conversion from Jesus is crazy, I don't believe in him, to he is the Messiah, and now James is a pillar of the church, the best explanation is what we find here in this early Christian creed, that he appeared to James. That's the kind of thing that has the power to convert a sibling. This is important because sometimes you'll hear various individuals dismiss the writings of the New Testament as a product of a believing community. Uh, in other words, it's not real history, but a kind of religious propaganda written only by true believers who have already drunk the Kool-Aid. But James wasn't a true believer. He and his brothers were on record as saying that they didn't believe him and he was out of his mind. Remember, too, the case of the doubting Thomas, who initially refused to believe the story uh, that Jesus had been resurrected until he witnessed it for himself and put his fingers in the nail prints and in his side. And this kind of shows us that Jesus didn't merely show himself to believers, but to many different kinds of unbelievers. And the best example of all of that is the Apostle Paul himself. The Apostle Paul is, was a persecutor of, Christian, of Christians before he was called by Jesus. Scholars aren't exactly sure where the creed that Paul cites ends, but basically everyone admits that by verse 8, Paul has added his own testimony in which he says this, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. That last part in which Paul mentions the fact that he persecuted the followers of Jesus is a solid reminder that in fact, he was this hostile witness, and it's a complete misrepresentation to suggest that the earliest Christians were members of a believing community that busied itself with spreading religious propaganda. You know, the kind of propaganda that flies in the face of the evidence, anyway. In fact, the opposite is true. The people who propagate this kind of thesis in books, lecture halls, or Discovery Channel documentaries are the real propagandists. And their beliefs are out of touch with the facts of the case. In fact, some individuals go so far as to suggest that Jesus never really lived and that he was just an invented character. But even the very liberal, very, very liberal, Bart Ehrman, attacks this view in a book he wrote called Did Jesus Exist? He writes this. What easier way to undermine Christianity than to claim that Jesus never existed, but was invented, made up, created? Ironically, these kind of people are so intent on showing the historical Jesus never existed are not being driven by historical concern at all. Their agenda is actually religious and theological. They are complicit in a religious ideology. They are not doing history. They are doing theology. To be sure, they are doing their theology in order to oppose traditional religion. But the, op the, the opposition is driven not by historical concerns, but by religious ones. I have to admit that I have some good deal of sympathy with these concerns, because he's not a Christian. 
But I am also a historian who thinks it's important not to promote revisionist versions of the past for ideological reasons rooted in non-historical agendas. Jesus did exist, whether we like it or not. End quote. Now here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul reminds, us, reminds his readers of the thing of first importance, which is the good news, news, something that happened, an event, good news about Jesus who died for our sins, who was buried, who was raised on the third day. This, according to Paul, was not a fairy tale. It is not wishful thinking. Those two things are essential components of our gospel. This is not just wishful thinking. It's not a leap of faith. This is confirmed, real things. It really happened. This is rooted and grounded in objective facts that are established and confirmed both by eyewitness, uh, living eyewitnesses who saw it then, as well as, which by the way, included hostile witnesses, such as James and Paul. In fact, in verse 14, as we saw, Paul said, you know, if Christ hasn't been written, risen, our faith is in vain. Think about that. You, no matter how much faith you have in the wrong thing, it's in vain if it's not actually connected with something that's actually happened. And he went on to say that if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, it's very clear that in this early Christian community, the Christians of that early time period weren't simply making claims related to their own subjective religious experiences, but were attempting to make objective factual claims about the real world, and they backed up those claims with solid evidence. After his death and burial, Jesus had been seen alive by hundreds of witnesses, most of whom were still alive when he wrote this. But even more persuasive is the fact that all these witnesses saw with their eye, what they saw with their eyes had actually been foreseen many centuries earlier and was recorded in the Hebrew scriptures. So Paul is saying that the gospel that he's been proclaiming has been confirmed and verified. It's not just true for you and me because we believe it. It's objectively true even when people stubbornly refuse to believe it. Beloved, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the thing of first importance. It's a thing upon which you and I stand and by which we are being saved. It is not a list of instructions for improving your life or a list of tactical approaches for improving society. The gospel is about a completed event. It's the good news about Jesus, what he did then and there in Jerusalem on the cross. It's about his death, his burial, and resurrection. These events were seen and foreseen. They were recorded by trustworthy and credible eyewitnesses. And what's more, they were foreseen and written hundreds of years earlier by the prophets of Israel. Jesus is the divine Messiah who by his suffering and death atoned for our sins and was raised for our justification. By his knowledge, the righteous one makes many to be accounted righteous and he bore their iniquities. This is the good news that the Old Testament saints were anticipating and which all of us look back on as being fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. This news is trustworthy, reliable, and firmly established. Well, in conclusion, let me ask this question. 
what is our part in all this? Is it just a body of facts that we just tip our hat to? What's our part? Well, there's got to be something we do. What do we have to do in order to be accounted righteous by Israel's Messiah? What must we do to ensure that he will bear our iniquities? Here's where Christianity is different from all the religions of the world. Every other religion, you see, is rooted in imperatives. Do these things. Help, help, uh, help your neighbors. Love. Climb the ladder more and more. It's all about imperatives for what you should do. But according to the Apostle Paul, the heart of Christianity is not something we are called to do, but rather the heart of the faith is a gospel that we're called to receive. The gospel is good news. It's something that was done. It's something that has already been accomplished. This is the thing of first importance, that Christ died for our sins accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he died, and that he rose again. So what do you need to do to be accounted righteous? Isaiah himself actually walks through this some 700 years before the time of Jesus. What is the thing that connects you to the Messiah in Isaiah 53? The first verse of that passage, he asks this question. Who has believed the report? That's the thing that connects you. Believing the report. Who has believed the report? And then just, just so that we're clear that the act of believing isn't sort of meritorious. It's the one rung on the ladder that we have to climb. Isaiah also went on to ask, after that, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, he's saying that believing itself is not a meritorious work. It's a gift of God's grace and mercy. Nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling. Brothers and sisters, the gospel that is revealed here in this earliest Christian creed is very simple and clear. It's good news of something that's already happened. And what is, what's happened? Christ died for our sins, and he was buried, and he was raised on the third day. It's simple enough for a child to understand. And if you think about newcomers to the faith, like Theophilus, what does, Paul, what does Luke say to Theophilus? He says in the preface to his gospel, Theophilus, I've investigated these things thoroughly so that you can have certainty. The gospel is certain because it's been established and confirmed and fulfilled. Let's pray. Gracious Father, our hearts are filled with thankfulness and gratitude when we consider the fulfillment of your gospel in the person and work of Jesus Christ, which is the thing of first importance. Though we have sinned against you in so many ways, you sent us a rescuer and redeemer who is testified in advance by the Hebrew prophets and seen by trustworthy and reliable witnesses. Jesus died for our sins, was buried and raised for our justification. And so we ask you would open up our eyes more and more that we would see our true condition and our need for Christ conform us more and more to his image to the end that we may glorify you in all that we do. Help us also to share this good news with others and that through our words 
we pray that you would draw others to yourself. All this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.